0: asking you to take your word and implant it into our hearts, that it would make us more like yourself by your Holy Spirit, and I pray, Father, that we might uh, learn from the book of Numbers what you want us to learn, and we would uh, be encouraged and challenged uh, by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, for those of you who are in the other class, we have been dealing with the story of Balaam uh, for a good while. (laughs) I mean, probably, I don't know, four Sundays in Balaam, maybe. Um, Some of the lessons that we have learned in the Balaam uh, story is that there is absolutely no other power that can compete with God. God is absolutely over all the other spiritual forces. Uh, God will not be manipulated. He has determined to bless Israel, and nothing or no one can stop that from happening. At the same time, anyone who uh, perpetually opposes Israel will themselves be crushed. So so not only does God determine to bless Israel, but he will uh, utterly destroy anyone who opposes Israel. That's just, God wins, Israel wins. Seems pretty simple. Uh, We talked about how this entire struggle between Balaam and God happens without any uh, um, knowledge of the rest of the Israelites like they have no idea the battles are going on it, it'd be like uh, I don't know we get we get blessed here in North Carolina and we don't really understand the battles that maybe go on in, in Raleigh uh, to try to make policy in, in Burke County something that's good you know so we don't we don't see about we don't hear about but there's these huge battles raging and God wins these battles on our behalf that's really what's going on so You would expect from that message that Israel, the people of Israel, would go from victory to victory. That's what you would expect. When you get done with Numbers 24, you are like, yes, I'm happy I'm an Israelite. And I you know, God is on my side. Okay, that's what you would expect. Um and then you read verses one through three of chapter 25. And uh let's see, Jet, would you carry that around, that microphone to somebody, let them read those verses so Marcus doesn't have to do that. Uh let's see Jim Pate's ready to read that right up here Israel see Shittim right here this is Shittim they're they're on their verge to go into the promised land that's where they are okay heading in there go ahead read for me Jim
1: While Israel lived in Shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of moab these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods so israel yoked himself to baal and peor and the angel of the lord was kindled anger, against, anger of the lord was kindled against israel
0: yeah some little mess ups don't don't matter but some really do matter <laughs> <laughs> the angel, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So, all right. So, what do you what do you think here? As you read through this, what's your what's your thoughts? Just initial reactions. Whiplash. and it does feel like whiplash, doesn't it? Strong language. When they get comfortable, they go off on their own. Go ahead.
2: They whore with the daughters of Moab.
0: Yeah, they whore. Okay. Other thoughts? Try to, try to reflect not just on how bad Israel is, but try to reflect, try to, try to put this together with all the victories that we just talked about. We need what? So, uh, so we need we need help to know God, and we also. What was the last part you said? I like that, Lee, about our hearts. You go. Um, in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, now if you follow the, you have Genesis, which we've been going in sermons. Exodus is when God brings his people out of Egypt and they are given the law. So the book of Exodus really is at the beginning of the wilderness years. And then the numbers, book of Numbers is, is a good part of what happens, kind of the high points or the low points of what happens during the wilderness time. And as we get to the end of the book of Numbers, we're at the end of that 40 years, and they're just getting ready to go into the land. So just before Joshua, the book of Deuteronomy would also be a, uh, at the end of the uh, wilderness years. But in Exodus thirty-four, this is what God says to them: Take care. That's like, look, be careful, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. So, do you think God knew that this was going to (laughs) happen? So he knows before they know. In fact, if you uh, another place in the book of Exodus when they're given the law, the people all shout, "We'll do whatever God says. We love the law. We'll just follow him and him alone." You know, that's their declaration. Uh, it says now Israel in is that, was there some indication that they were not supposed to remain? No. No, I just think it's this is during the time that they are living in Shittim Right before they go into the promised land, so uh, and remember, this is uh, Moses has has made his uh, hitting the rock with his staff, and so he's been told he can't go into the promised land. So the the leadership of Israel has failed, and the people also are failing. So here's the question: um, Well, let me do. Before I get to the question, so whore, there are two things. There's, there's sexual desire, sexual pleasure, but then there's, uh, that's, that's like the entry to the, to the real thing is choosing another God to bring happiness to you. That's ultimately what's going on. Will you believe and trust in the God of Scripture to bring about blessing and happiness to you, or will you? This is a this is a this really just kind of like the entry drug. It's not that God's minimizing sexual passions, but but even David, you know, you know, he had committed adultery. But it's it's the deep. This is a symptom of looking for happiness apart from God. That's the real issue. Yeah. Making it's making an idol. It's, it's right. It's, uh, so there's, there's two ways to make an idol. One is to take the true God and turn him into an idol. That's what they do with the calf, right? But another form of idolatry is to actually leave the true God for another God. And then, because all the false gods had idols, you know. Um, So only, you know, a big portion of the lesson of Balaam is you can't make me an idol. (laughs) I am everything. You just trust in me for blessing. You cling to me. That's how you get blessing. And I will never revoke my blessing on Israel, that kind of thing. But the people, uh, well, let me ask you this. Why would the people in Israel have been tempted in Shittim, contextually, they had just conquered this kingdom, they had just conquered this kingdom, they they had been conquering foreign kings, and and, and winning battles under the name of Yahweh, so why would they have been tempted to leave their god for these other gods, the gods of the, the Moabites? Maybe family members. yeah. Jim? I think if we have... Uh, if the Lord is walking with us, but we are walking with the Lord, and we win all these battles, I think we become overconfident. <laughs> Overconfidence. pride Pride cometh before the fall. So there is there is a uh, allurement, um, pleasure, pleasure, good, right? The Bible says pleasure is good. He's the one that created sex. He's the one who created. Um, Uh, taste buds that can enjoy pleasurable food. I mean, pleasure good, but submit pleasure to God, which implies that God in the present doesn't give you everything that your heart desires now. I mean, think about manna in the wilderness. Could God have like rotated the manna such that it was a different flavor every day? Could he have, you know, we I mean, could have done a lot of things, right? We don't, we do that with our, whoever's cooking the meals. I don't want that this week. I had that, yes, you know, give me something new. Give me something better. Can't you make a better meal than this? You know, so we're, we pleasure good, food good, but the, whether or not it's, it's caught up in the heart because I think that's a part of the corruption of the heart. It's never satisfied. But also, it's, part of it is, is caught up in the fact that God doesn't give everything right now. Like the, the, the blessing is not supposed to be fully experienced right now. And so he allows there to be frustration, dissatisfaction. Like that, that's not a, it's not, it's not like something's wrong. God actually purposely allows you to not quite be as happy as you might want to be. Right, so, so they're diluting their witness. I'm just repeating because I don't think that was on. Uh, they're diluting their witness, and instead of actually being a blessing to the nations, they're going and becoming like the nations. They're being enticed to say that the nations, what they have is better than what we have. And is that not the very temptation that Jesus experiences in the wilderness with Satan? When he says, all the kingdoms of the world are mine, and I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down to me. So the very struggle that that Israel is failing miserably with is the struggle that Jesus endures and overcomes Satan. Does that make sense? And that's really where our hope is going to be in overcoming Satan as well, is not in our own ability to overcome Satan, but in our clinging to Jesus to give us the victory that he has already won over Satan. But I think we have to realize this is the real battle. <laughs> this is the battle that goes on in every heart. There, and it, it attaches us in different ways. Some people, it might be sexual temptation. It doesn't have to be sexual temptation. It could be power, influence, respect, praise of men, you know, whatever. But you, in a sense, give up your pursuit of what God wants which requires you to submit to what God wants. Jesus saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, God. That kind of attitude, you have to submit. That's what God requires to say, no, I want that. And I'll get it at any cost. It makes me think of
2: that, um, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Yes. Because it seems like, because there isn't a neutral. You can't just go into neutral and float. You have to be fighting and those the other ones that you read before this, I think from Exodus, it was he was saying you're going to tear down the Asherah, like you are <laughs> going to actively be killing these things, right? Or it's going to kill you. Mike, I just want to add to that, as with Eve, they she
1: saw something. As with Israel, now they saw something, and 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 so you've got to learn to to direct your vision to him, you know, to, to the heavenlies rather than circumstances that, you know, grass is greener on the other side. You just can't trust your sight.
0: (coughs) Whoa, good. So, um, sensuousness, a lot of times we think of sensuousness with sexual, which I think is very true, but sensuousness is exactly what you're talking about. It's I know how I feel when this occurs, right? Whatever it is. It could be drinking too much alcohol. It could be, you know, um, you know whatever, breaking any of the commandments. You know, <laughs> I know what I feel like here. So I have control of this. I can do this. And you're trusting in what your senses tell you, rather than, or what your sight, senses, sight, your feelings, rather than faith, what God says. And and <laughs> I mean, I admit this, I am tricked by this. You think, oh, not Mike, not a pastor. He wouldn't get tricked by this. But yes, you get tricked by whatever it is that tickles your fancy the most. And that's what you go after. And uh, we need to realize that this is a, this is a lifelong struggle for all of us to live according to the will of God rather than what we want. So I can in my mind tell myself, and, and I repeatedly try to tell myself this, and for the most part it works. This <laughs> just doesn't always work. But I tell myself, okay, who is the one that makes anything actually pleasurable? Like who is the author of pleasure?" What's God? I mean, if, if it was in the things themselves, then the people with the most toys would have the most happiness. Is that the way it works? doesn't work that way, does it? Some of the people who have the most things are the most unhappy. True happiness is a gift from God. That was godliness with contentment is great gain? Right, like, if you can actually be truly content with what you have, that is one of the greatest gifts that God could ever give you. So, so this, I tell myself that, oh, I enjoy things only at the, the uh, control of God. And if I'm not completely satisfied, one, I can repent of that, but two, I can look to God to take me through this and give me whatever he wants to give me in this life, and that will be enough, Right? But that's hard to do sometimes. Particularly if you're if you're going through hard times and they're extended hard times and they're painful times and they're frustrating. You're asking God why you have feelings of depression. You know, whatever. There's there's all these things going on. Kids, my parents make my life miserable for me. You know, whatever. You can think all whatever you're thinking, you, you know. It's not easy to, in a sense, bow your heart to God. That's that's the challenge. And this is what I'm trying to say is just because we read this story, just because we know it, doesn't mean you're going to be able to just, it's going to be a piece of cake for you now. It doesn't work that way. Everything that we read in the previous chapters about God being over everything and Him being in control and Him defeating His enemies and giving complete blessing to His people, those are all true. And we have to still wrestle every day to fight against this, tem- this temptation. It's a struggle sometimes harder than others. So um, this is the real battle. Turn to Joshua 2. Uh, let's see. Nathan Graybill, you want to read for us? Sure.
2: One through four. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look... Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. That's good. That's
0: good. So here's my question. This gets you thinking a little bit. Why... Do I have you read Joshua 2 um, after what we've just talked about in Numbers 25? What's the connection? Is there a connection? This is not an immediately apparent one. So that's why I'm... Okay, so this is... They, the, while, they were, while they were here, whoring after the, uh, the women of the Moabites, they're sending spies, like they had sent 40 years before spies into the land... Okay, so from Shatim they sent spies in okay it's good there's a that's a connection they're living in the same place yes it, I've never made this connection with the prostitute so so here it is they actually are in the house of a prostitute. talk about how uh in shatim they're they're like prostituting themselves to the Daughters of Moab. Here, the spies are in the house of a prostitute, but vastly different, right? Lee, I figured that
1: would not be thought. I mean, I figured that was the most obvious place for them to go for safety because no one would question. Maybe, Maybe so. Perhaps
0: I don't know. Uh, yeah, she'd had information. Uh, Yes. So so here's, here's what I want you to see. So here's your propensity to evil, and here's God. That's what I think is going on. God can actually take a prostitute and use her as the means to redeem his people. And she actually is the one that comes to God's people rather than her dragging people away from God. So, left to yourself, left to your own devices, apart from the grace of God, we will all whore after the gods of Moab. It's just what you do. You have an evil, your propensity to evil, you have a heart that is truly evil. If you're a Christian, you also have a new heart, and that new heart desires what's good. But do not underestimate, there's a portion of you that really does want what is evil. And it's hard for us to actually accept that. I just mentioned showing pictures of my granddaughter Jet. You look at this little girl, and it's just so hard to believe that she has a sinful, evil heart. It's hard to believe that. But it's true. <laughs> It is absolutely true. And we have to deal with this the entirety of our lives because when you become a Christian, God in a sense separates you from your heart, but that, new, that old heart is still there inside of you and you must fight against it every day. And as Laura said, it's either conquering you or you're conquering it. We have to put it to death every day. Okay, so there's this pretensity to evil. But I actually believe that this new heart is not... This would sound this is just me musing as i've wrestled this new heart in a one to one battle is not as strong as the old heart that sounds crazy right because the new heart but I will say that the new heart is imperishable so it's it is the new heart can't be killed it, it just i, I Think of my new heart as Rocky. You know, I don't care how many times you knock Rocky to the ground, he's getting back up. I know that's in the movie, but it's nice to think that, right? You know, bam, he's down. No, he's not. He's getting back up. You know, my kids watch the movie with me. They're like, Dad, is he gonna No, he's not going to die. He's getting back up. Don't worry. He's on the ground. He's got blood coming everywhere, but he's going to win. And that's a little bit like our new nature. Our new nature will not lose because it can't be killed. The power to overcome doesn't come from the new heart. It comes from the spirit. And what is the sword of the spirit? The word. So that's where the strength comes. Trusting in the word, relying on the spirit, those sorts of things. Prayer, that's what's able to put this to death, but not just in a one-on-one wrestling match with them. So, but again, God's bigger. God is bigger than here. And that's what you have to believe that if you're going to keep fighting against sin in your life. Okay?
2: Yes? Can you, explain, can you explain how the scripture, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How do you explain that in relationship to what you just said?
0: I'm not trying to be contrary, but no, I'm trying no. to understand it. This is a new creation. Right? Okay, so let me do this. Okay. Okay. The new creation is something that occurs when Jesus returns. right? If you go back to the original creation, okay, so the, and this is actually a very, it's just, there's tensions in scripture trying to fit things together. Your your question's excellent. So, so this is the old creation. This is the original creation. It is a fallen creation. And you are part of that creation, okay? Romans 8 will tell you that the whole creation is yearning for the revealings of the sons of God when Jesus returns and we all experience the new creation. Okay? That's when all blessings will be given. That's when we'll have perfect peace and joy. This is the new creation. Well, two things occur. Jesus dies. Okay? He goes down into the grave. He is dying... To this creation. Okay? You following this? Like when he actually dies and is the tomb, his life in this creation is finished. He then rises up. This is the resurrection. Right? He rises up. He is seated on the new, uh, the throne of heaven. So when he rises up, this resurrection right here, is he now in his old creation body or his new creation body? New creation, right? So here's what happened. This new creation, because the creation is a singular event, okay? It is a singular, Jesus is going to just wipe out everything and make all things new. People are going to rise from the dead. Everything's going to be made new at this moment. Well, this new creation is brought back in time to the resurrection, so that Jesus is actually new creation. okay? Now here's, here's you. You have faith in Jesus. And the Bible tells you that you are united to Jesus Christ in His death. And resurrection, which means that you okay, the you before you come to faith is is part of the old creation, but the new you okay is new creation. Now here's this is this is the tension. You're still living in an old creation body. It's still dying. And you still have an old heart, you. Because the, all through the New Testament says you must put the sin in you to death. But isn't it wonderful that when Paul starts his, his treatise on your continued struggle with sin in Romans 7, you might remember this, when he, what does he call, how does he define sin still how does he uh, speak about the believer when he chooses to sin? He says, it's not me. When I sin, it's not the real me. He's not meaning you get off, you're not accountable to God, you did the sin. But he says, it's not the real me. He calls it something else. What's the phrase? Sin, living in me. That's a strange phrase. Because he no longer identifies himself. That's a big hot term in our society. Do you identify yourself by your old self and your old sin? Or do you identify yourself by your new you who you are in Christ? You're a new creation. Paul says you're a new creation, which is why I encourage this for everybody. I sign my names often like this: Mike in Christ. Why do I do this? Well, the, the Cairo is Christ, that's the abbreviation for Christ because Mike no longer lives isn't that what Galatians 2.20 says I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I live in the body I live by faith in the son of God Romans 6 says I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live Like it's, it's you know, I've been died and buried, and now I'm raised up with Christ. He's not saying that you don't still have an old sinful heart. He's telling you that your new identity is now who you are in Christ, because you're united to him in his death and resurrection. You are seated with Christ. This is with Colossians, where? In the heavenly realms. Looks like you're still down here with me right now. So all these things, whatever happened to Jesus, Happen to you. That's why he says you are a new creation. Not because you don't still have an old heart. Not because you're not still in between these two worlds. You are looking back. You're united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And because you're united to him in his death and resurrection. You know you will be part of this resurrection as well. And so there will become a day. When you will no longer be fighting with sin. Because this this you will be completely removed. The presence of evil in your heart will be completely removed. But you are not there yet. But which, which you, I'll get you, Lori. which you is eternal? <laughs> the new one. Which one is, is already crucified through union with Christ and is dying away? The old you. Now, that's hard to believe when you're getting your butt kicked against sin. When you feel like you can't win. When you feel like, I can't, you know, I can't overcome my depression. I can't overcome my worry. I can't overcome my lust. Whatever it is, you're that like, I can't overcome this. You need to remember, you're united with Christ, and he has won the victory. And that will keep you fighting. Because you know the victory has already been won. Go ahead,
2: Laurie. You, you sort of said it but uh what i was thinking is in the new um person we are united to christ we have a choice to access that power Mm -hmm. to help us and you you had said a while back that in the old nature the new nature was easier was harder than the old nature because in the old nature we we didn't really have to fight that's right i mean we could just do whatever we wanted and in the new nature, we do have to fight, and we do have to access the power we're given. Mm-hmm.
0: And we do that by faith. Yeah. Yes, Robin in the back. Oh, boy.
2: <laughs> I think that um, we don't really like living with these tensions. You know, we want heaven right now here on the earth. And, um <clears throat> And I think that um, as parents, I just remember when my kids were little, you know, you're looking for those signs of faith and repentance in your children. And and sometimes it's just, you know, we just don't know. We don't see the spirit working. You know, he's like the wind. You can't really see it one way or the other sometimes. And, and I think it's... Um, and it's scary for us as parents to think that our children might not believe mm. yet and and we can't, since we can't see their heart, we look at the outside, which was what we're supposed to do I mean we're supposed to address things that we see um, but I think that I think that we can't be afraid to um, talk to our children about <clears throat> you know search your heart, you know, do you believe, to ask that question, especially if we're seeing signs of, you know, that we're not sure, you mm-hmm. know, as they grow older, and, and that's what communion is for, too, I was thinking about today, and, um, you know, it's a time to search our own hearts, you know, am I, am I a believer, you know, am I in faith, And um, and ask God for that, and have faith to believe that he will show you, that he will show your children, that in his time, that he will... He will make that change um, in their hearts. Um, But not to be afraid to, not every day and not beating it over their heads, of course, but, you know, pray for those opportunities to say, you know, let's talk about your heart. You know, what's going on um, in there?
0: So, um, I'm going to, thank you, Robin. I'm going to take that a step further. So, this was a regular occurrence when we would try to have family worship with our kids. So we'd be having all kinds of fun. You know me, I love to have fun. So we'd be having all kinds of fun. And then we would want to pause to have family worship. And we would, you know, read scripture, sing a couple songs, pray. Nothing too elaborate, just um, the kids early on, this, this changed over time, but early on, like, resisted that. Oh, come on, Dad. We're gonna watch a movie. We're gonna do this. Come on, Dad. You know, let's. We're having so much fun. Let's not. You know, and um, so how do I respond to this? And and it's my my theology that informs how I um, talk with them. So the first thing I I told them often, you know, Dad doesn't always like family worship either. That's the first thing I said. What, is that, what am I doing? I'm identifying with their old nature, and I have one of those too. You see how that works? Like you're not just a meat like, oh, I'm the Christian. I love to do everything good all the time. That's not Christianity. You have a new heart that does want to, to, to worship God, but you also have an old heart that doesn't. And to be honest, as a parent with young kids, some of the most brutal moments of my life were trying to have family worship. Jenny on my one side, just kind of like going all over the place. My other kids, you know, not, you know, what are we doing? Or we try to, even a little bit later, have them punch out a song on the piano. And they were not very good. And I wasn't good at singing. And it was just like, wow, is, can this actually be beneficial? That's kind of what I felt a lot of times. So, but the first thing I would acknowledge to them is I don't like to do this all the time either. Daddy does not always only want to worship God you sh- if you don't admit that to your kids you're not you're not helping them because inside their heart they're trying to deal with I don't want to do this and you have to relate to them now at the same time you want to then give them hope you want to then say but I do want to worship God and why do I want to worship God because just what we talked about earlier every bit of joy that I experience today has been a gift of God Do you think it would be right of me to not even say thanks to God? To take 10 minutes and tell him thanks? You think that's right? Now, you don't want to make a a law of family worship and this, but you can use this in a lot of different ways, you know. But but just how wrong would it be if somebody gave you a great gift today and you just ignored it and just went on? Didn't even say thanks, you know. And so they start thinking, now that makes sense, Dad. Yeah, I, I should want to worship God but I don't always want to worship God. You know, so they're like, then they're wrestling with this in their mind. And when Robin says to search your heart, here's the question. Is there something in your heart? Is there some spark that wants to truly love God? Or is there no spark? Because we all have the other part of the heart that doesn't want to worship God. That's not really the question. The question is whether there's a spark that does want to worship God. And so I would say to them, you know, Jesus died because we don't want to worship God. That's why he died on the cross. You need his forgiveness because you, don't want, you want to take everything you can get from God and not give anything back. That's the, that's the heart of sin that lives in me and it lives in you. Okay? And so that's how you call them to repentance. That's how you begin to say, look, daddy needs to do this too. And it didn't just happen once in my life. There was a beginning, there was a point where I consciously said, I don't want to live for myself, I want to walk with God, I want to love God. That was, that was a defining moment, but not everybody has that defining moment like I had in my life. But, but there was, after that moment, it's a repeated thing. When I find myself worshiping myself, I need to repent of that. And I need to continue to cling to Jesus because he's the only one that has perfectly loved God and not himself. I need his death on the cross. I need my union with him. I need him to continue to fuel the spirit of God that wants to love God and help him to help me to increase that desire so I can fight against the old desire. That's Christianity. And you do it the rest of your life. And I'm just using the example of family worship. It doesn't have to be family worship. It could be coming to church. It could be some obedient whatever it is. It's just we all are struggling to overcome sin within us. And that's the process um, that we're dealing with. That's a long answer to your, your question, Frank, but this is the real issue. And I think all the way back in Numbers, this is what God's telling them. God knows that this is the battle from the beginning. And he wants them to know, I am bigger than your heart. I am more powerful than your heart. He is greater than your heart. If you don't believe that, you'll never get in the fight. You just have to live the way you are. You have to believe that he's bigger than your heart. Um, I believe that one of the reasons for Rahab, and I hadn't seen this before, is that God wants to say, yeah, your heart wants to betray, wants to be horror, I can take a prostitute and use the prostitute to save you. I am bigger than your heart. This is pretty awesome. Flip over to Joel. Chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, 16 to 18. Who wants to read? Well, I know who wants to read that. we give that to Mary Dunn. She wants to read that. Thank you.
2: The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim.
0: Mm. <laughs> Do you see this? God is giving his great promises to his people. He says, I'm going to water Shatim. What does that mean? He's going to take the very evil and filth of this moment and actually make it beautiful. Isn't that what God does with our sin? Isn't that what we expect when we get to glory? We don't expect our sins to go with us into glory, not in a way that will rob us of eternal bliss. God will, can even take the valley of Shatim and water it and make it beautiful uh, turn over to Micah 6 this is right before Micah 6 eight, which is a famous verse. this is Micah three through Micah six three through five. I um, want you let Clark read this.
1: My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gagal that you may know that the righteous acts of the Lord.
0: Okay, there you go. Do you see that? That God doesn't want to just remember the Balaam story. He wants, to re- wants them to remember the Balaam story connected with the Shittim story because in the end, it is God overcoming the rebellion of Shittim that it's all about. And it's, it, it tells you that Israel doesn't get this figured out immediately, do they? Micah's at the end of Israel's history, and he's still telling the people how to fight with this. It's still the same battle going on. Every generation through your whole life, this is the struggle. And you must trust in the promise of God to overcome your evil We are to remember the saving acts of the Lord. This is why we need to remember that we are united to Jesus Christ. This is the defining act that he does to save us. This is where the victory lies. Not in your own ability to somehow conquer your evil of your heart. If you are the problem, you cannot be the solution. You see that? no you must overcome your sin you can't overcome your sin I mean those are the two Yeah, they're both there and we learning from the book of Numbers and through the rest of scripture that God is not only able to crush our outward enemies God is able to save us from our inward enemies This is why the incarnation was necessary. This is why the cross was necessary. This is why it is only through our union with Christ that we can have salvation. We want to be a Christ-centered people. We do not want to just be an outwardly moral people. We want to have Christ be everything. Paul says, I claim to know nothing but Christ. In him crucified. Um, all right, let's go back to Numbers. I got to get through this chapter, right? Okay, so first off, before we go into verse 4 and read on, um, we also need to understand that God can, can at the same time be determined to bless and have anger. He can experience both of those. If, if you don't understand this, then you don't understand what it means to be a parent. Because you can be at the same time committed to the welfare of your child and be very angry with them. It's the way it is. And God is, when it's his children, now when they're not his children, he, you know, there's not, those, <laughs> we don't have any hope. <laughs> you know, it, it's only as being his children that we have hope of, of eternal life. So, but there's only anger, and that anger is leading to hell in those who don't know Christ. But in those who do, who are in Christ, God is using his anger to discipline, not to crush, but to using it to discipline so that he can eventually root sin out of your life and bring you to experience the true blessing. So don't be, don't be like over-concerned that, oh no, God's angry. Does that mean when I first read this, I thought, "Oh, I mean all the blessing that we just talked about—God's going to bless His people. He won't. Can't, that's all gone now. It's gone. He's only angry with His people. You think you can jump to the other side? <laughs> but really, what's going on is there's there's this commitment to bless and this this anger towards sin, and God is forever weaving this these two together, such that it, through union with Him, the sin gets crushed, and we become who He wants us to be." And it's just not done in this life until we get to glory. So, not finished in this life. Okay, let's read 4 through 15. Uh, Mike Starnes, you want to read for me?
1: And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, And the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, slay you every one of his men that were joined into Baalipur. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought under his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. How far?
0: That's good. Okay, so what's happening in this passage? Um, Take all the chiefs, hang them in the sun. That's pretty serious stuff. Okay? Um, Use capital punishment. So these chiefs, experience capital punishment for their sin. Okay, It is open that God clearly says that if you you perpetually go after sin, you will experience this fate. And we are to think that with the, the judgment of God upon these chiefs, we are to think that God, in essence, is casting them out of the visible people of God. And they are experiencing his final judgment and wrath. <clears throat> this is like sheep and the goats kind of stuff, right? So you're watching this, and you're watching other people. It's going to be 24,000 people that also are going to die of the plague. Okay? And while this is happening, what does this one man do (laughs) this one man basically looks at this judgment happening and he says i don't care in the face of the threat of god's wrath he could care less and he is going to go on sinning. And God then com- commands, well, what does God do? In verse 7, what does what happens? Yeah. Yes. So that's a priest. Right? That's a priest. And in this sense, Phineas stabs him through, kicking him out, spears him and his lady, and they are killed. Now, this man, these 24, and these chiefs were all a part of Israel, and they all get crushed, okay? Now, I feel pretty confident this person is crushed, utter rebellion, experiencing hell, um... Maybe all of these people as well are were certainly to think that way, um, but it is somewhat possible to me that there could be some of those that God has redeemed. But that's not the that's uh, coming from my reading in First Corinthians, where God says um, in the um, the warnings of taking communion that some people who take communion uh, without unworthily. That some of them get sick and some of them die. So, like God does take some people out of the picture, and it does seem that He's doing that, saving them from eternal hell. So, but anyway, the, the, overall, the picture is God can and will judge His unrepentant people to an un, eternal hell. That's the that's the overriding message. Okay, this guy looks at that judgment and could care less. He gets crushed by the priest. Okay. By this act of obedience, I think Phineas actually um, Phineas uh, foreshadows Jesus Christ in this. In the book of Hebrews, if you deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth in Christ, there is no sacrifice for sins left for you. You will die eternally. So if you just throw away Christ and go on sinning, there's no hope. I don't care if you grew up in the church, had Hail Marys set over you, baptized three or four times, none of that matters. This, you must take your sin seriously and bow it to Christ. And this guy flaunting this brings about the fact that there is still a judgment for those who are in Israel. But all of this is happening so that the rest of the people of Israel will continue to have faith and repentance. Because what you have is you have Israel, the, the outward visible people of God, and then you have within Israel what we often call as is true Israel or the remnant of Israel, those who truly belong to him uh, occurring. Because the blessing of God is really only given to those who respond in repentance and faith. Mary.
2: Did Moses obey the Lord? I mean... Or are we to assume that he did? It just says, you know, take the chiefs of the people and hang them. And it, doesn't,
0: it doesn't say anything about that, what he did. did he, that he actually took these guys and, and hung them, right? Right,
2: that's what I'm... I'll
0: I don't know. I, I don't think it says one way or another. But it does tell us that Phineas is the one who actually takes the, the ownership here to do this. Yeah. Yes, Ken.
1: I realize that the um, the judgment on the twenty four thousand was a warning to the other, uh, the remainder of the
0: congregation. But uh, you know, so often we have the, the the warnings to the entire population, and then there comes a point where there might be repentance. But it seems here that it was sort of immediate. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, well? They they got a plague. I don't know how long it took for the plague to kill them, and that's why I'm saying I'm not. I mean. You, you, I think the symbolism is that these people are being judged by God. They're under the judgment of God. I think when we get to heaven is it possible that God could have killed somebody and then still make it to each? we'd had the same question with dealing with the original generation of Israelites who died in the wilderness. They didn't make it into the promised land, but they but they may have repented. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so we just I, if I had to choose, I would say they're in hell. But I mean I'm just saying that, maybe there's a little wiggle room there, I don't know. So In revelation you have we have the trumpets which which were the warning, then you have the, the bowls which was the judgment. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it depends on where the people stood, I imagine. All all that matters, you we <laughs> all that matters is that if you're reading this story, you don't just go, Oh, I can go on sitting, do whatever I want, and I'll be go to heaven. <laughs> You can't come to that conclusion. You just can't. You have, to, you have to fight against sin. Will you completely overcome all your sin? No, but you have to fight against it, and you have to be sincere and true in fighting against your sin. As Lori and I have to finish with this, so I'm sorry. Uh, we're already late. You're, you're either putting sin to, to death or it's putting you to death. You just can't have both. And if you find yourself being beaten by sin it shouldn't make you utterly hopeless, but it should make you want to fight against it and trust in Christ and cling to him because that's your hope. So, okay, so we did not get all the way through that, but that's okay. We'll pick that up next time. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the word of God. It is a wonderful truth, and yet it is a scary truth at the same time. Um, Lord, help us to, Um, help us to not take you lightly, to be utterly thankful for the cross and your forgiveness in Christ and to cling to Christ with all of our being because without him we have no hope. In Jesus' name, amen.